0: When you're walking around base Camp on K2, the second highest mountain in the world, you never know what you're going to find.
1: Because unlike Everest, K2's topography and weather forces everything that ever was, everything and anyone who was ever on the mountain, off the mountain. I call it the world's highest graveyard in my book.
0: That means dead bodies it's not uncommon to find the remains of climbers who didn't make it. People who died on their way up or on the way down in pursuit of their passion on an 8,000 meter peak. Writer and explorer Jennifer Jordan was on K2 in 2002.
1: I was with, on a small team of fabulous people. Araceli Cigar, Hector Ponce de Leon, Armando de la Vega, love the names don't you, and Jeff Rhodes and when the team was climbing those four would be climbing, I would be walking the glacier for my exercise.
0: So Jennifer was just walking around, and in the barren landscape of a mountain at 16,500 feet, all kinds of things on the ground can catch your eye.
1: So I always found something, some of it benign, some of it not so benign. And Hector started calling me the bone collector, because I was just always finding something along the way. And. This one day, Jeff was in camp so he was with me on my afternoon hike and we found this debris field that was obviously old.
0: Typically the stuff Jennifer found was relatively new. gore texy nylon and bright colors from the 1970s, 80s, and 90s.
1: And then all of a sudden we found leather and shards of hemp rope and shards of canvas and old primus stove burner and stuff that hasn't been used I knew in decades
0: hadn't been used in decades, more like 70 years, so they kept looking. And then suddenly Jeff found an old crampon.
1: We knew if we found a crampon, there was was somebody close by a crampon. And then all of a sudden I looked down and I saw a shard, and it's funny how your brain can pick out of all this effluvium something that really shouldn't be there. And I picked it up and I handed it to Jeff and I said, is it? And he goes, oh yeah, that looks like a piece of an ulna.
0: An ulna. That's one of the two long bones in your arm that lead down to your wrist. So the search was on to find more. A fibula, a tibia, the long leg bones, a pelvis, a scattering of ribs. No skull, thank God, but they found the better part of a complete skeleton. And then all of a sudden Jeff bends down and picks up a tattered leather and canvas glove, a climber's gauntlet.
1: And on it, it was very faint felt tip point letters was the name wolf in cap letters and I he and I just looked at each other and went, oh my god we found Dudley Wolf
0: now if you're like me you probably never heard the name before but in 1939 Dudley Wolf was on one of the earliest expeditions to reach the summit of K2 An adventurer and one of the wealthiest men in the world at the time, he was left for dead with the rescue team of Sherpa after a devastating avalanche. Some say he was the victim of his own foolishness, others say he was abandoned by the members of his climbing party as they fled the mountain to save their own lives. And even though his body has been found, there remains a great deal of controversy around Wolf's death that continues to this day. In her book, The Last Man on the Mountain, Jennifer Jordan gives us a close look into the life of an American adventurer, the first to die on K2. I'm James Mills, and you're listening to The Joy Trip Project. Give me a little bit of perspective. What was Dudley Wolfe doing on K2?
1: Dudley Wolfe was kind of man searching for meaning. He was a born adventurer, and if he'd been born a century earlier, he would have been on expeditions to find the poles and to cross the seas and to stake claims on uncharted land. But as it was, the high mountains were the only real uncharted territory left. And he drove an ambulance on the front lines with Ernest Hemingway, and he hunted wild ibex in the, the hills of Europe, and then found himself in the midst of that training, and that climbing, and skiing, and trekking in Europe, involved in loving the alpine life. Met Fritz Wiesner along the way, and Fritz was struggling to find funding for, in 1939, imagine that, you know, German-American, in pre-World War II America trying to find funding. I mean, it was an ugly scene. So along comes this millionaire looking for an adventure. So Fritz and he met and Dudley said, hey, I'll help you. And, you know, part of the deal is I really want to go for the summit. I mean, I don't want to be a pampered client at base camp. You know, I'm a strong man and I've done all this work in the Alps and all this climbing, so I want a shot.
0: I think it's fair to say that he was definitely qualified for the times to do this particular climb. Tell me a little bit about some of the dynamics of the expedition and the members that were on it in terms of making it perhaps not the best
1: environment for a successful summit. The team was woefully unprepared. And as you say, in 1939, nobody had climbed an 8,000 meter peak. Nobody had experience. The highest Fritz had been was on Nanga Parbat. I think he made it to 23,000 feet. He certainly wasn't tested in the death zone. And except for Charlie Houston and Paul Petzold, the year before on K2, they had made it to 8,000 meters. And Charlie, you know, to his dying day said he barely made it off the mountain. So that kind of experience, nobody had. Now, what the 1939 team also didn't have was a team that had any kind of breadth of experience. I mean, Jack Durrance was a great guide in America Our highest mountain is 14,000 feet. And again, he knew nothing about ice. The minute he got to that mountain, he was terrified.
0: His claim to fame was climbing Devil's Tower.
1: Right. He was an incredible rock climber, great skier. And when he got to K2, as I say in the book, his daughter told me, Jack said to himself, we are totally fucked. And just looking at that mountain and looking at that world of ice that he was totally unprepared for. There were telltale signs. I mean, Fritz couldn't gather a strong team. None of the 38 team could or would go. And the men that hadn't gone in 38 with Charlie Houston that might have been able to go with Fritz in 39 didn't, wouldn't, couldn't. You know, you got to read through the lines here. So Fritz ended up with a team of four, five climbers himself, Jack Durrance, Dudley Wolfe, Shap Cranmer, and George Sheldon. George and Shap, I mean, they had never been above, gosh, I mean, twelve or 14,000 feet. I mean, neither had Jack as well. But they were woefully unprepared, especially emotionally. I think they were barely 19. And there they were, George Sheldon, first time he'd even left the country. And there he is on a six-month expedition, a 660-mile trek in and out. So I think, especially having done you know, the last 80 of those miles. I think when they finally turned that last corner in Concordia and finally looked at that mountain 10 miles down the glacier, three of them, shap George, and Jack said, no way. That is way too much mountain for us. That left Fritz and Dudley going, bring it on. And with all the Sherpas in the world, and all the support in the world, to expect two men without any kind of 8,000 meter experience to be successful was just suicidal.
0: It sounds like there's a lot of ego.
1: A lot of ego, as there is today.
0: How much of that was complicit in the utter tragedy of this? It ultimately culminated in Dudley Wolf's death, along with a number of Sherpa.
1: You know, it's so hard to speculate 70 years later. And it's so hard to speculate because, of course, Dudley's diary didn't survive. When all things, when the, you know, when every, everything finally shat the bed and Jack Durrance was the only one left at base camp with any hope of going up to get Dudley, he couldn't do altitude. He couldn't get above camp two without blinding headaches and nausea and just incredible disorientation. So ego I mean ego because they were still there ego because Fritz um refused to look at the writing on the wall as leader he really wanted that mountain Charlie Houston told me he needed that mountain financially professionally uh, Fritz said to Charlie if I make this mountain I can marry a rich American widow and never worry about money again and Charlie looked at that and thought oh my god you know This is not a good scene. Charlie knew enough about K2 to know that you can't go to that mountain with an agenda.
0: Something that really struck me through the course of the book was the fact that so much had happened to almost sabotage the ultimate summit attempt, particularly when Jack Durrance and other members of the party evacuated several of the high camps
1: all the way to base camp. How do they reconcile those decisions, or do they? They didn't. They all pointed fingers at each other to this day. I mean, I think my book is one of the first to get hold of others' diaries, not just Jack Durrance's. I had access to Fritz Wieser's original diary. I found Tony Cromwell's family, and he, he had he literally, Tony Cromwell, left the mountain and basically lived in Europe the rest of his life. And I found his grandson, and I said, you know, there was reference to your grandfather's diary, but nobody's ever seen it. What do you know about that? He said, well, I'm sure he burned it along the way. So all by way of saying that everybody pointed fingers at everybody else about those camps being stripped. Now, what what I found in Jack's diary, which was odd because it didn't come out for years, is that Tony sent a note up to Jack at Camp 2 saying, time to go. Shepherds are on their way or porters are on their way. We're heading out. You know, to, July nineteenth is our is our date. So Jack and Kikuli stripped the camps. They were told, and then Cromwell was never held accountable. And when Fritz labeled Jack as the man who stripped the camps, Jack never defended himself, and I to this day don't know why. It
0: sounds to me, um, having read the book, I get the impression that uh, Dudley Wolfe was the only person on this entire expedition pure of intent.
1: Absolutely. Well, <laughs> Dudley didn't need it. I mean, he he needed it emotionally, the way any adventurer needs the adventure. He didn't need it, obviously, financially. He wasn't doing it to prove himself. He wasn't doing it to... I mean, Jack, at one point, said some really squirrely things about Dudley trying to win his wife back by this, which is absolutely patently false, because it was Dudley who ended the marriage, not Alice. So... Yes, Dudley was there because he loved adventure. He was an incredibly gentle soul. He was an incredibly generous soul with his money. He didn't like feeling like the cash cow of the expedition, which the other boys made him feel like. But yes, he was there, looked at that, took one look at that mountain and said, absolutely, I can do this. He never had a moment's doubt.
0: So what do we learn from Dudley's experience in the first American death on K2?
1: We learn that passion has a very high price when your passion is at 8,000 meters. He always handled his danger with a lot of balance and respect and intelligence. He volunteered for World War I driving an ambulance because the US military didn't want him because he had flat feet and bad eyes. He handled that danger. Uh, He didn't come back like Hemingway, just kind of shattered. He thought he could handle K-2 you know he thought he could handle the danger and ironically he came really close to doing that and if there'd been either people to turn him back or people to help him down he would have probably died an old man on the coast of Maine so I would say the price of passion at 8,000 meters is a very very hefty one Mother, Father,
0: please explain to me Why a world so full of mystery A place so bitter and still so sweet So beautiful and yet so full of sad, sad. Mother, Father, please explain to me Why forests march to deserts speed While snow-capped mountains melt away What do we tell our babies when This interview with Jennifer Jordan was recorded on location at the Mountain Film Festival in Telluride, Colorado. The book, Last Men on the Mountain, is now available in hardcover. You can find out more information online. Visit jenniferjordan.net. For the Joy Trip Project, this is James Mills. Music this week by the Dave Matthews Band. The Joy Trip Project is brought to you thanks to the generous support of our sponsor, Patagonia makers of fine outdoor clothing. Find them online at patagonia.com. Thanks for listening. But you know, we want to hear from you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word by posting a link to it on your Facebook page or send us out to your followers on Twitter. Post your comments to the Joy Project blog or send us an email at info at joychairproject.com. Share your stories. Share your passion for outdoor recreation, environmental conservation, acts of charitable giving, and practices of sustainable living. And you just might inspire our next joy trip together. But most of all, don't forget to tell your friends. Until next time, take care.